Here's uh, here's one. It's called How Many Roads Must a Man Walk Down? Can I hold these on the table? Let's keep that in case he needs it deep. Scissors. <laughs> Here's a song, this is in sort of a set, set pattern of songs that say, uh, say a little more than I love you and you love me and let's go over to the banks of Italy and we'll raise a happy family you for me and me for me Answer, my friend, is blowing in the 
before he can see the sky and how many ears must one man have before he can hear people cry and how many deaths will it take till he knows that too many people have died Welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard. That was Bob Dylan. And a live version of Blowing the Wind from July 1962, live at the Fingen Club in Montreal, Canada. And that's because we'll be featuring and talking about a range of Bob Dylan and John Lennon songs here today, uh, sometimes by those artists, sometimes interesting cover versions. I've got a brilliant pleasure to welcome John Stewart today, author of Dylan, Lennon, Marx and God. That particular book talks about the parallels between Bob Dylan and John Lennon and digs deeper into those songs, uh, which is what we'll be doing today. First of all, a huge welcome, John. Thank you very much for having me. Maybe it's worth just talking about the concept of Dylan, Lennon, Marx and God and how that came to you because I mean just to start off with even though the, there are sort of parallels I don't know how many books that have purely focused on those two artists together and compared the two yeah there's a kind of a, a strategy of writing called dual biography that you can do and there's been a few there's there's been Hitler and Stalin and there's been a few around Dylan uh with with other songwriters I've got Bob Dylan and William Shakespeare over there on the bookshelves winking at me which is a relatively new one but no one's done Dylan and Lennon, uh, most or Dylan and any of the Beatles. There's been a bit of academic work on Dylan as the, and the Beatles as a band by a guy called Ian Inglis, which was interesting to read. And I drew on quite a bit. And you'd probably, in many ways, Dylan's biggest friend in the Beatles was George Harrison. And he also worked with Ringo quite a lot. But uh, Dylan and Lennon seem to be the natural ones because Lennon was the erstwhile leader of the band voice of the band the the most out there political figure the one with the biggest links to the united states arguably and um along with harrison an absolute dylan not huge fan and their influences are really transparent their influences on each other are far more transparent than most fans would like to admit uh, particularly dylan fans who kind of see him as aloof from from that pop music stuff but of course, Dylan was always a rocker. Uh, before he was a folk, he was a rocker. And they shared exactly the same musical influences, Little Richard, Buddy Holly and people like that. They're, they had this sort of slightly more complex relationship than, than Harrison and Dylan, which was just a friendship. Whereas Lennon and Dylan, it was quite alpha male competitive, I think, in a certain extent. There's lots of, I guess, folklore about it from that famous trip in the back of a limo, which was Dylan's tour car on the 66 uh, UK tour when 
which was filmed in part for the movie he was making at the time. That's the only time they were met and it was ever captured on film. But there's lots of other times they'd met, lots of folklore around that. Some that are celebrated, like that one, or the time Dylan introduced the Beatles to marijuana, allegedly, which wasn't true, that Lennon had been smoking weed since around about 1960 in Liverpool, probably. He'd been doing Vicks inhalers before that, so he knew about drugs. Yeah, so there's just loads of parallels and loads to explore in uh, it, the, the way I've passed it out is their protest music around the theme of peace songs, their view of kind of the past and their heritage. So sort of expanding it out from that one issue to 19th and early 20th century literary and uh, other influences and then their spirituality. So panning out from the recent history to great existential questions of uh, what's it all about, which they, which you can find in all their songs. What we'll be discussing across this podcast actually absolutely highlights that. So first track, Blowing in the Wind, which is a, an example of a protest song in a, in a way, mm. the different paths of, of protest songs of, that both artists had where Dylan, many of his early songs were protest songs or seen as protest songs, but actually over time that generally receded with Dylan. Yeah, it's really interesting. Blowing in the wind, he, he he wrote quite early on. He had massive spurt of writing in 62, 63 when he got to New York. And there's another protest song called Playboys and Playgirls, which is really an out there, very political, old style union song. And Pete Seeger fell in love with it and said it will be his greatest, it will be his breakthrough song. There's various styles of protest songs and Dylan goes from the obvious protest to the kind of oblique, mid-60s protest song and backs off from politics conspicuously so to the extent that by the end of the decade there's a, a free Bob Dylan movement the Dylan liberation liberation front where they're trying to get him force him back into politics and embarrass him about his lack of protest against the, the Vietnam War which Lennon joins in with and wears a badge one of the times they met that's not really known about Lennon invited Dylan down to the recording studio where he was recording David Peel, a folk singer, and he'd written a song about Dylan and Lennon played it him and Dylan walked out of the studio. That was one of the two times when they were in the studio together when something could have happened and it didn't. So D- Dylan backs off protest because he kind of saw what happened to people in the public eye in America, uh, which is very often they got shot. And Lennon does the opposite. Lennon dives into protest. So Dylan's protest songs start off as quite straightforward American Union traditional style protest songs and then get more and more oblique. So you end up with like Tombstone Blues, which you don't really know what it's about, um, or Highway 61, which again is an anti-Vietnam War song, but it's kind of coded. Whereas Lennon starts the opposite. He starts with The Word, which is a very spiritual song, but it's actually a peace song. All you need is the word, the word being love, but it's coded. Lennon starts off doing this sort of coded anti-war stuff and then he ends up doing give peace a chance and all you need is love and goes the full journey and um, and avoids the strictures of being a Beatle where he couldn't really talk politics. He uh, he dances around that a lot. And most of his early politics occurs in his books in his own right. It's full of great political skits and, and really trenchant observations about unions and politicians and what have you. And books, of course, being another way that uh, Lennon influenced Dylan because it was it was Lennon's lit- literary success that inspired Dylan to start Tarantula. Uh. And they're both quite similar books, that sort of oblique stream of consciousness, 
weird prose. Although I think Lennon was ironically probably better at it. I don't know why, but Tarantula is a real difficult read, whereas Lennon's books have a certain charm about them. So it's a fascinating relationship between them. It's far more complex than Dylan and Harrison's is. And uh, so that's why I chose those two. And I'm a massive fan of them both. So The next song, as, as you were kind of referring to, is The Word. And we have the Weaklings uh, version, which is quite a, a power pop statement. But um, to mm. end the discussion on The Word, there's, there's sort of a Lennon looking inside himself in a way. So there's an introspective element. Yeah. I mean, everyone thinks about relax your mind, float gently down the stream and all that kind of amazing stuff that he wrote after the word but the words really his first proper meditation song he as soon as he heard dylan he realized he didn't have to write childish love me do type lyrics and he started to get very meditative and go on a bit of an inner journey and he started writing songs about being depressed or unsure about himself or hide your love away and those kind of self-reflective songs and then this comes off the back of that so if you think about dylan dylan's been referencing the bible since his first folk songs loads of his early folk songs have got amazing biblical references and this is lennon picking up on that and writing a sort of spiritual meditative what's it all about song it shows you the cross influence as well because dylan was a rocker really at heart and that track is got such a great groove to it so you can see how a lot of the tracks Dylan was recording with a band where he's trying to find a groove, probably not necessarily influenced by the word, but certainly influenced by the Mersey beat sound. Can you please crawl out your window and all those really cool mid sixties Mersey beat style songs that, that he did that are just cracking really hold up, hold up today. Groom still waiting at the altars, like a later one, but that kind of beat that you hear in his tunes, that has got that real drive to it. I think that's what he always wanted to do. understood but now i've got it the word is good now that i know what i feel must be right i'm here to show everybody the light say the word and you'll be free say the word
you were talking going back to Dylan about playboys and playgirls, and that's a that's a bit of a lost mm. a lost song of Bob Dylan that that could easily have gone on his um, one of the the first few Dylan albums, and when you hear it now, it's like an archetypal early Dylan song, which is basically kind of almost lost to time. It's a cracker. I love it. You know, it doesn't even appear in his compendium of lyrics. I think he buried it. Obviously, you don't know, but my guess is he didn't want to be the big folk voice. As we know, he only wrote protest songs, quote unquote, for about a year. And then he more or less ground that to a halt and told everybody he was going to do it in song brilliantly. For me, it's a real cracking old school. I think I think the tune's quite similar to this little light of mine. Mm. You know, it's just based on that beautiful American protest aesthetic. Seeger absolutely loved it. The don of American protest music fell in love with it and was sang it with him at the big festival that they played together, which is the, probably the best recording of it, um, most liveliest one. And the whole point, as he sings in the song, you know, you only have to hear this once and you can sing along with it. Everyone sing along, you know what? You know what the words are as soon as you've heard it, which is classic protest form. And Dylan just junks it, never records it properly. I mean, he dumped, he dumped a lot of songs when he was doing freewheeling. He had obviously took a lot off that album, but mm. never even tried it. Never once recorded it in the studio, as far as I'm aware. He was too good at doing that stuff. It's capturing, you know, the current social history of America at the time. There's mm. references to segregation, Jim Crow, and then referencing to the sort of industrial complex in, in America where you've got, which is Masters of War, I guess. Yeah, that's one of the brilliant things about Dylan's stuff is he was so aware of what was going on. And he must have seen that speech that uh, President Eisenhower gave as he left in 58 or whenever it was, where he basically foretold the military industrial complex and, and warned everybody about it. And I think that's what Masters of War is about. It's not very fashionable at the moment in academia or in writing to have that kind of great man theory of history as about as toxic as it can be. But I think there's an argument to say if you were going to pick a lyricist from that era and someone who was able to capture what it meant to stand up with a guitar and sing a song and look smart and sexy, if I was to play my students, Phil Oakes and Bob Dylan One's got a certain magic and one's just a bit pre even Phil Oaks's best song that it's like slightly preachy and and you can see why Dylan pulled away from that. It was a bit holier than thou. He was the original social justice warrior, I think, in a lot of ways. And then he he drew back from it. I think a big thing for for Dylan is individualism. Another thing that a lot of academics don't recognize because many of the great Dylan scholars are from the UK. Dylan's style of protest is based on the individual. Most of his protest songs use first person. I did this. I did. Very rarely does he use a we, which is your classic protest song. His is about the individual experience. And oftentimes, even when he does use the collective voice, it's in part of telling a particular story where a couple of people get involved in something like Oxford Town. I think that comes from the American tradition of transcendentalism, which is a very strong literary tradition over there that concentrates largely on nature and the individual. And that's where Dylan's songs concentrate their protest. So blowing in the wind. I mean, how many Bob Dylan songs mention the wind or waves or the sea or some sort of landscape imagery? Even his very first radio, Bob Dylan radio show was weather. And the first song was blow, wind, blow, I think. So he uses individualism and nature and naturalistic metaphors. Whereas... 
Uh, and that's not spotted by a lot of British critics and writers because we grew up not really being aware of the transcendentalist tradition in the United States, that literary tradition, which is very strong over there. If you grew up in the in the 80s and 90s in the UK, the literary tradition was more to do with post-Marxist ideas about class and, and we're such a class-bound culture. Someone like John Lennon grew up being a working-class hero. Um, Dylan would never have written that song. Dylan wrote Union Sundown, which is which is basically a Donald Trump protectionism song. So that shows you where he's more populist in that sense. Famously, as he said in Chronicles, his favourite 60s politician was Barry Goldwater. Gosh. Maybe he's a populist at heart. You know, it doesn't mean you can't be progressive.
Next we have Noel Harrison's The Actor, a version of John's, predominantly John's Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. And you forget that in the in the 60s, it, there wasn't as much gap to that sort of Victorian, Edwardian literature. If you were growing up mm. in the 50s, for example, it's just, it's a relatively recent memory in terms of those books that are hanging around the house. Yeah. And your your teacher at school, if you had an, an older teacher at uh, school, they would have been someone who possibly had a Victorian school education themselves. So it seems such a long way back for us now. But I think in the 60s, it was uh, certainly Victorian Edwardian times, not really that it was still a living tradition. Big figures from the time like Churchill, massive cultural figures who who were steeped in that tradition. The literature that, that Lennon read was bound in that tradition of well everything that's kind of been stripped out of the uk today the sort of empire the glory of empire and all that stuff which he satirized a lot in his written work but at that time critiques of empire were quite new and quite daring his literary imagination is really stems from the 19th century writers like lewis carroll and Lear, whose adventure stories are based on on the experience of empire from the colonizing side that I think that was just in all innocence, the experience of lots of people growing up in the United Kingdom at that time, it it was a big thing. They probably weren't fully aware of the implications of it for people on the receiving end of that situation, but certainly for people growing up in the UK, all your public buildings and you go to the pictures and then evening would end with the, with the national anthem (laughs) and all that kind of stuff quite it was just a natural thing and and what you were taught at school about the british empire and the sun never sat and you'd have a big map on the on the sun never sat on the british empire yeah. i'd have a big map on the wall with all the british empire colored in pink and all that stuff so again i think that that's a worldview that's dying out the last people that remember that now are dying literally but lennon was i think right in the heart of that post-war colonial malaise as britain started to lose its colonies the big irony for that i think with the beatles is that the year that they broke through internationally they become these kind of cultural ambassadors for british culture swinging 60s each one of those years like 63 64 65 progressively about eight or nine countries left the empire and became independent and deconstituted themselves from the british empire so it's fascinating as the Beatles rise to power as this non-violent, peace-loving, cultural influence around the world, the at one time sort of British redcoats and British army are retreating from those same, you know, as the Beatles are selling hundreds of thousands of records in Jamaica and influencing lots of nascent reggae and ska bands who are all covering their music and they're obviously listening to that music too and reproducing it in their own way in tracks like and stuff sort of clumsy scar tracks as that thing's going on the british empire the vast economic and uh, military force is retreating from all these places and it's been replaced by the beatles which is kind of cool in a way losing the sky with diamonds is part of that his landscape his imagined landscape which is less obvious in Lucy in the Sky of Diamonds, but more so in 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 other tracks on that that album, particularly some of the original lyrics and some of his songs before he rewrote them, things like Being for the Benefit of Mr. Kite and stuff. They're just redolent with with the the, the influence of that tradition. Four thousand holes in Blackburn, Lancashire, all that stuff. I mean, that was a 
all those old mill towns and the Royal Albert Hall and all those lyrics has got this sort of little nod to this, these traditions that are knowingly, perhaps unknowingly fading away. And, you know, the uniforms are wearing on the album sleeve yeah. cover and all that stuff. It's, it's all stuff that wouldn't be done today at all in any way. We've, the last 20 years, we've really moved away from that. Picture yourself in a boat on a river With tangerine trees and marmalade skies Somebody calls you, you answer quite slowly A girl with kaleidoscope eyes Cellophane flowers of yellow and green Towering over your head Look for the girl with the sun in her eyes To a bridge by a fountain Where rocking horse people Eat marshmallow pies Everyone smiles As you drift past the flowers That grow so incredibly high Newspaper taxis Appear on the shore Waiting to take you away Climb in the back With your head in the clouds And you're gone Lucy in the sky with diamonds Lucy in the sky with diamonds Lucy in the sky with diamonds Picture yourself on a train in a station With plasticine porters with looking glass ties Suddenly someone is there at the turnstile The girl with kaleidoscope eyes Lucy in the sky with diamonds 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 Lucy in the sky with diamonds. 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 Lucy in the sky with been a band who faithfully recreate the Beatles' previous um, guests on on this podcast, and um, John's house in Kenwood was kind of a living embodiment of those, of, you know, the Victoriana, the Edwardian stuff, and he was like a magpie gathering all that in his house, and it, it mm. ultimately sort of came to fruition on on that song. Yeah, and and that's another really interesting one because. Uh, you know, I never thought about Kenwood. I should have put that in the book. We should have had this conversation two years ago because <laughs> Kenwood and, and the architecture, Abbey, the Abbey Road building. Yeah. I, I mentioned um, Royal Albert Hall because of the obvious lyric reference, which is which was built by 
two engine royal engineers who were like known as the architects of empire they you can see their style in in all the great public buildings in lots of australian cities that date back to that period mr kite is an interesting one because in the one sense it's a post-empirical song because the reason why circuses had horse performance trick pony acts was that dated back to 1760s and the end of the Hundred Years' War in France and all these cavalrymen arrived home and couldn't find work. So that's when that British circus tradition started. Another little cultural irony there is, is that the proprietor of Kite's Circus was the first black circus owner in the UK. And it, it seems like he came from India. I can't remember his name. It's Pablo Fank. Thank you, Pablo Fank, which is in the lyric and he was a he was a huge celebrity and really well known and a very charitable figure he was known for running these charitable events he was like the uh the telethon fundraiser of his day via the circus and this was um obviously a, a retirement do for a very popular rider so in that sense not only is it is it um there's a sort of the ghost of empire in it. It's it's also a class thing. It's a workers' benefit concept in many ways, which is a class issue. So that's Lenin, again, subconsciously or consciously responding to this idea of being a working class hero and responding to this idea of someone working in the fair as a performer and then needing a benefit concert for them because they didn't have social security, those performers. So that's essentially what that was. Particularly that Beatles 64 on, on 65, 66 period. Uh, but even to a certain extent when he, you know, when he gets, that's I think that's why he gets so political in 69, 70 and 72. And he, you know, he joins the fairly, what what is not far off being a cult, you know, a fairly extreme left wing political party, which has a very singular vision about the world and, the Fourth International and the WRP or whatever the party was at the time uh, was one of those sort of sectarian communist groups. And he, I think his kind of class interests took him down that route, which was what Dylan would never, never have gone down there. You know, Dylan became a Christian because of the obvious influence of the church in the United States compared to the Communist Party in the and proper progressive left-wing labor unions, which were smashed in the 50s. So he, when he was writing that stuff, it was already history, I think. If Dylan was going to get involved in a thought reform organization, it would, all, it would always be a, a fairly hefty church. Whereas with Lennon, you can see, uh, although he went to church as a chorister and a Cub Scout, the same church, I think, where he, where he met Paul and the Beatles formed, you never see him going down that traditional religion route if he was going to get involved in a the fairly closed world, cliquey world of some kind of thought reform group. It was probably always going to be revolutionary politics. Way, Mr. K will challenge the 
Topics dissect here. So if you look at being for the benefit of Mr. Kite, you've got a, a narrow slice of English history. Mm. And now we have a much broader song, which is much more sort of sweeping and universal in terms of American literature and uh, American history with Bob Dylan's 115th Dream. And we have a Sobe Sexu's um, version of that, the American shoegazy. I really like this version, actually, because uh, she kind of rewrites the tune and and she's got an amazing vibrato on on her voice. This one and the sort of talking World War Three blues type tunes, I think, are really fascinating, just because of the scattershot literary references and the way he's able to summarise really important moments in in American literature. That he's clearly very very knowledgeable about. This is obviously Captain Ahab, which he calls Captain Arab, which I don't know if we get away with today from Moby Dick. This is a great example of that why Lennon's all about class and why Dylan's not. Because if this was John Lennon, this would be a song about the workers on the ship. And this is not. This is a song about or drawn from a piece of literature where the captain of the ship has this great tussle with nature once more in the form of a whale. It's the individual, Captain Ahab, and the whale, nature. He's such a young guy when he writes this. And very subtly, he throws in such incredible references that my favourite part is the parking ticket on the mask. Hmm. Uh, It gets back, there's a parking ticket on the mask in the ship, which is a great joke. But obviously in Moby Dick, the key thing that's on the mast is the doubloon that's driven into the mast. So that's a subtle reference that you'd only really get if you're familiar with the text of Moby Dick. That's songwriting genius that is a level of literary sophistication that you're just not going to experience in popular music today and i think part of it is because dylan's not with a band he wanted to be a rocker 
he found himself in a folk world. He's a very, very literate guy, huge amounts of reading and a superb poet. And when it's you and an acoustic guitar, it's all about the words. And it's so profound, some of the stuff that, that he writes. And I only really realized that when I wrote the book and I looked into the story and I was like, that parking ticket, that's the doubloon. That's the golden doubloon, obviously. And I'd been a fan of that song for 40 years before I realized that. But it's quite profound. And it's one of those ones that I think you know he's serious about because without referencing this song, in one of the recent speeches he gave, which was either one of the awards he won in America or the Nobel Peace Prize, he references Melville and Moby Dick in, in quite, de- quite some depth. So that's obviously stayed with him. This isn't a bluff. This is somebody who really, really, really knows his stuff, even though it's that, you know, stream of consciousness nonsense lyric. It's got some great twists and turns and jokes and very, very clever spins in it. It reads like a a scene from a, a movie, you know, something, some kind of like millennial end of the world type thing. It's a song about the end of the world. Uh, and nationalism and the foundation of America and and flag waving and all that stuff uh, without necessarily being a protest song at all. It's got a Beatles reference as well. I did put this in when I was, um, I should have put this in the book. I went out the door, the Englishman said fab. (laughs) That's the Beatles, isn't it? Yeah. That's the fab four. That's another Dylan influenced by the Beatles. I did see it and I thought it's just too oblique. I was riding on the Mayflower I spied some land I yelled for Captain Arab I have you understand Who came running to the deck Said boys forget the whale Look on over yonder Cut the engines, change the sail On the bowline We sang that melody Like all tough sailors do When they are far away at sea She had a friend 
So now we're moving to towards the 1980s with Bob Dylan. We've got Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds version of Death Is Not The End, which has got quite a guest list of uh, vocalists If for those that are listening out. We're moving more to potentially more spiritual elements here. Yeah, so the book looks at their protest, their peace stuff, and then their, their accumulated view of their heritage and their past and the 19th century in particular. And then it expands out into the spiritual world. And I'm an atheist. I have had a very pr- profound belief for many years. I got, I got sober in AA about 20 years ago. And I, I went to loads of meetings and prayed and it really helped. And, and I did that for about 15 years. And, and I've had a pretty profound relationship with my higher power. And then after about 15 years, I was like, I'm I just did some reading and kind of changed my mind about it and um, became, I guess, more of an atheist again. And I got really interested in how our mind, how that process of acquiring faith, which they both did, how that works. There's quite a good explanation for all this, which seems quite solid as far as I can tell, which is that it's an evolved process. So much like our diet, tastes evolve we have reward systems around things like sugar and salt things that were rare when we evolved and they're necessary to us we crave and then there are other ways that we organize say we organize ourselves in in social groups which is really important for a a physically quite a weak mammal We've, we've got this great language and thought capacity but we're not physically very strong yet we were still able to it seems wipe out most of the giant flora and fauna like mammoths and saber-toothed tigers and all that stuff they all went when humans arrived so we we were able to work together and it seems that one of the ways that that happened one of the ways of us communicating in small groups was some form of spiritual 
moral sense that we share that we can build on and build socialized groups around which is kind of what religion is i suppose in a way so the argument was that much like some of our reward systems that are are very vulnerable to things like alcohol or sugar which is why i have an obesity crisis um because we we evolved in a a time when calories were very scarce and alcohol would barely exist in in a piece of ripe fruit but we needed that hence that's why we're so attuned to it our ability to think about somebody else abstractly, our ability to uh, venerate our forefathers, our ability to band together and, and sit and meditate and feel comfortable with each other, and need for what academics call teleology, which is a story and a reason for things. And most of all, our ability to separate mind from body, which is mind-body dualism, all of those things kind of combine to function psychologically they it seems that they explain the structures of religion in our consciousness so death is not the end is a great example of a song by dylan that is based on the fact that that your mind is not your body and for anybody who's spiritual or religious your soul and your body are different things and you leave your earthly body so within that concept in Dylan's song, is him articulating the mind, the idea of mind-body dualism that is one of the founding psychological bricks of what it means to have faith, which I find a fascinating thing. Having been on that journey, kind of come around it. And it's really interesting that Nick Cave does it. I'm guessing this happened before the awful tragedy that happened to his son. It will have done, yeah. Yeah. Been before that. I just wondered, it made me think about the version that Eric Clapton, Eric Clapton wrote, obviously, Tears in Heaven for his boy, which is has to be, I don't have children, but I would think losing a child is the worst thing that could anybody could ever experience in life. And um, so it was, it, I, I kind of wondered when that came on his timescale, but it's interesting that Clapton, Tears in Heaven is also an invocation of that sense of mind-body dualism. And Lennon does it loads as well. People say, John Lennon wasn't religious. Look at the song God. You know, well, he might not have believed in God. I I think he probably did in many ways. And in other times he said he did as well. But he certainly believed in mind-body dualism. No question about that. And wrote about it loads. Remember that death is not the end. 
you're standing on the crossroads that you cannot comprehend just remember that death is not the end leads us on to our next uh, song which is one of John's last mm. which is uh, Grow Old With Me which is a, a perfect example of, of what you're saying in mind-body dualism. Yes, it's him and Yoko. When time has come we will be as one and that's the, their spirits will be entwined. And the interesting thing for someone like Lennon who uh, who did write so powerfully against religion and uh, wrote very, very coruscatingly against Dylan's, you know, the, the demos that he did in, in the Dakota buildings, Serve Yourself and things like that, songs that were very, very strong critiques of Dylan, although he was quite forgiving, unlike a lot of other people, when Dylan did get religion, he was like, yeah, but let him do what he wants to do, it's fine. But privately, he he kind of ribbed him for it a bit, I think. Yeah, even Lennon in Girl With Me, 
he he was also very traditional Christian God bless our love tropes. It seems to be sung quite sincerely, as far as I can tell. So there's lots of uh, clues in there about his own sense of the profound and the spiritual, and lots of even if it wasn't necessarily organised religion, loads and loads and loads of of comments from Lennon over the years hinted at that and certainly under Yoko's influence and became a very, you know, they were hugely into numerology and Egyptology. And some people suggest, I think a little bit dismissively that he was basically humoring Yoko. And I find that hard to believe because if you watch any of the interviews that he gave with her, and this was in Facebook chats on like the John Lennon fan club, when I'm chatting about the book with people that, I'm like, have you never watched him being interviewed at the time where people would suggest that to his face? He, he would be very, very upset to hear that. You look at Imagine, the song Imagine, yes. which is, is exactly. hugely, I mean, it's almost a sort of co-write or John basing it on Yoko's yeah. work. Yeah, it's fascinating because it's a great combination of the Communist Manifesto and it says Imagine No Religion, but at the same time it's it's enacting this idea of this sort of revolutionary idea of no borders, no possessions and all that other stuff through the imagination, which is literally mind body dualism. It's a plea for progressive politics based on the idea that if you literally think hard enough, it will happen. So that's, that's the, that's that book. Remember that best-selling book, the secret that came out in 2006 or whatever. I mean, that's basically John Lennon's message for his, from a big chunk of his life was if you only think hard enough, it will happen for you. And, that again, that's that mind power. Well, it's in mind, it's in mind games, it's in loads of his stuff.
we have next uh, Bob Dylan, a live version of In the Garden, that, that being a strong live favourite of Dylan's for for about 20 years. And and, and that, that, that was from the Saved album, yeah. where that, that's a song that's based heavily on, I assume it's the New Testament. Mm. Fascinating thing with Dylan is he does those amazing three Christian albums, which I remember coming out and just being just disgusted by them, <laughs> really upset by them at the time. And listen to them now. I think they're brilliant. I think they're, I mean, clearly for once, production's become a thing for him. Previously, almost everything he's released has been three takes and then move on, often with mistakes. Some albums, John Wesley Harding, which is apparently one of his greatest albums, he never tunes a guitar all the way through it. It doesn't bother doing any overdubs. Like records it as the first half of the record that will go down to, we'll go back down south and do some overdubs. Never happens. But I mean, for me, it's um, fascinating that he's so in the moment with his recorded music and then he finds God and he suddenly wants it to sound brilliant. It's very, very rare on a Dylan track that you hear any production. The snare shot on Like a Rolling Stone, the reverb on that. Tell me one other Bob Dylan song that's got conscious production on it. Maybe Rainy Day Women. But again, that, all they did there was swapped instruments and get drunk. That, that reverb on that snare at the start of, I mean, it's obviously a brilliant track, but it's conspicuous reverb. It's so, someone's dumping on the desk. Tom Wilson, he's clearly one reverb to make the snare hit sound amazing. But it's not until he gets religion that uh, suddenly his records sound brilliant and he spends ages doing them. And he would revisit that later with Daniel Lenoir. But if you read his memoirs, he hated it. Massive struggle. Hated it. And left the best song off the album. I think just to spite the producer. Really, really found it difficult recording with a producer who's going to make it sound good. But for that trio of religious albums, it seems that that was really important to him because he was making music for God now, which I think is a really interesting journey, creative journey to go on. The other thing about In the Garden is musically, it's really complex for Dylan song. It really moves through different chords in a way that probably no other Dylan song does. And it's quite hard to sing live, I think. Yet he's done it live hundreds of times. So point being, I don't think the religious period was quite that bad musically i've certainly reassessed it and um i think i think it meant a lot to him at the time and it did for a long time afterwards uh, to the extent that even once he'd stopped doing conspicuous faith albums when all or most of the songs were, were christian songs one appears on pretty much every album after that and in his radio shows there's lots of religious tropes even in lyrics of songs that aren't specifically, you know, you listen, you don't listen to them and think, oh, this, that could have been on one of his Christian albums. There's a bunch like that. Even on other songs, there's lots of references to God. And so I, I guess I kind of see him as um, there's a sort of tradition, the sort of Jews for Jesus tradition, oh, yeah. which is quite a thing in America amongst some Jews who are culturally or ethnically Jewish, but sort of develop a Christian faith and they get really interested in Israel as Dylan obviously did and traditional Judaism, because you know, let's not forget Jesus was a Jew. Uh, so th there's quite a strong, but small movement of Jewish Christians around the world. And I guess that's 
where he was at the time and without wanting to second guess it i suspect that's probably where he's remained which again like the barry goldwater thing most dylan fans don't want to hear because they're wrapped up in the first year of his songwriting in new york when he wrote 200 protest songs that changed the world and then gave it up and they can't we're still the Pete Seegers <laughs> complaining about him being too loud at the folk festival in 1964 or five, whenever it was at Newport. And he's had a lifetime of a journey since then. In the Garden, I think for me, is his most telling Christian song, along with all the others he's done since then that everyone ignores. <laughs> and largely because he still plays it live so much and ha- or has done for so many years. And he also mentioned it, I think, in the memoir. He said that the two songs that of his that were most underrated were that one and Brownsville Girl, which is an absolute banger. Just on the album's a bit of a stinker, knocked out a load of it. That track, wow, what a song. Mm-hmm. So he clearly wasn't making that up because he's picked two songs that I think he's being honest there yeah. because they they are two really interesting songs in their own in their own way. And I think that's another similarity between him and Lennon. Lennon found Yoko and got involved in politics and said some stuff that upset people and he didn't back down from it. He kept going. Uh, One thing that a lot of Beatles fans don't know about was the firecracker incident in Memphis, the first or second show they did in Memphis uh, on their last tour of America where he walks on stage and I think they're about three songs in and someone throws a firecracker on stage and they had death threats and Everyone was expecting it. Everyone thought he'd been shot. Everyone in the Beatles party, there was only about five of them, six of them. So they all turned around waiting for John to keel over. But he kept going. If you search for it online, it was taped, that concert, by fans. And you can hear it. It goes off with a proper bang. And it must have been a terrifying moment. And I think that's that along with the Philippines incident as well. They stopped touring, obviously. But um, didn't shut Lennon up. He did his best to apologise for the Jesus comment for the benefit of the rest of the band. But he kept going on about the war in Vietnam. Didn't, it didn't let him shut, shut him up about that. So they both share that characteristic of stubborn indefatigability. That's, I guess, when the chips are down and the world's against you, you might be a legendary, iconic artist, but you don't know if you, you're doing something. You never know if it's a career-ending move. And uh, they both kept going through that, which I think is kind of admirable in a way.
Lennon song and it's from that last Lennon tape and it's uh, You Saved My Soul which again highlights that religious references that are, or mind-body dualism references that mm. do actually you know are more there than than you may think with John. Yeah and there's some there's some suggestion a lot of the memoirs from people involved with Lennon towards the end of his life aren't that reliable 
But there is some suggestion that he got involved for a brief period with television evangelism and um, con- made contact with a few people, much like similar journey that Dylan had been on, you know, or was on at the time. And I think he'd been struggling for whatever reason. You know, it's a pretty out and out gospel tune in a way. I mean, any song that mentions soul is indeed the whole genre, which was built on gospel music, obviously, is a line in itself with the idea of mind-body dualism and therefore opening itself to suggestions of religion and what you might do with your soul or what, how that might survive your body and stuff. So yeah, it's it's uh, it's one of those songs that he does that is explicitly, I feel, religious, more so than most people would like to think. And as is across the universe, or lots of other instant karma, watching the wheels, which is the samsara stuff. So it's all in there for John too. Just I think um, Dylan goes down the Christian route, and Lennon goes down the Vedic route. But this, uh, along with those other tropes like God bless our love, in, in grow up with me are songs that do hint at that more Western Christian tradition that he was very familiar with, that he grew up with. The big irony of of all of this, of course, is the moment in the late 70s when Bob Dylan, because I've taken an evolutionary psychology view of Lennon and Dylan and religion, both of them around about the same time in the late 1970s denied human evolution in interviews quite vehemently. Bob Dylan from the position of young earth creationism because he was involved with the Vineyard Church and he'd adopted that position. And John Lennon from a Vedic tradition because although many people in in the sort of Hindu Vedic traditions believe in the evolution of animals, I don't believe that humans evolved. So Lennon says, you know, this this whole we came from monkey stuff is just nonsense. Very, very vehement about it. So you get this moment where these two great minds, these two great architects of Western pop, more influential probably than anybody else, are both denying what what is the most incredible discovery in many ways of the scientific world. So, yeah, I think uh, there's lots of ironies like that. The parallels go deep, and um, this is one that reveals that, I think. was lonely and scared I nearly fell for a TV preacher in a hotel room in Turkey I'll to save me from that suicide
it'd be good to close the podcast with Bob Dylan's uh, Roll On John. I think he only played the song live a few times. It's kind of Bob's nod to John. And, and listening to it, it's almost like John Lennon's now a, a social or historical figure, mm. but, you know, another figure that mm. Bob Dylan is writing about. Yeah, and he, um, I guess he goes into that pantheon of, I mapped out the historical figures that Dylan mentions in his lyrics over various periods, and it's a huge long list, more so than I couldn't imagine any other pop songwriters written and, and referenced so many historical figures. But yeah, Lennon's now in that, uh, which is obviously sad. It's a, a vindication of the argument that we know Dylan influenced Lennon hugely, but equally Lennon influenced Dylan, and a lot of Dylan fans still to the day aren't, aren't that happy with the idea because John's a pop singer and Bob's a poet. Around about the time he wrote Roll and John, he went on the National Trust tour of the houses that you can do. And there was lots of discussion about him and Paul possibly working together in the media. And I think you've got two big egos there. And ironically, they probably would have worked really well because Bob sings a bit like John, that kind of one note straight to the truth harshness fits Paul's sort of natural melodicism really well or would have done it I think it would have been interesting to see what so I think it's a shame it never happened but they just two huge egos clashed by the media and somebody didn't quite say something quite right and then it never never came down I think it's a wonderful tribute and it does show once and for all that John influenced Bob just as much as Bob influenced John and the irony being that at the time he was thinking about working with McCartney and then he got off, according to the tour bus driver, quoted in various media, he could have booked a private tour. He didn't. He went with a bunch of other people. They didn't realise who it was until they were halfway around. Wow. And then he got off before Paul's house. A fantastic visit. But Paul's is equally fascinating. And if you're interested in British history post-war, Paul's is, tells you so much more about how most people lived because... And John was obviously from that background, but they never had the council house. And he ended up staying with Mimi, who had sort of middle class pretensions, but lived extremely poorly, putting up students and, and lodgers so she could afford that huge house. They were they were poor. Mimi was poor. The idea that they were middle class was, was wrong. And you only realize that when you get to the house, that how frugally she lived. But in terms of what it was like for people in those post-war council houses with newspaper on the walls instead of wallpaper and all that stuff, it's only when you get to Paul's house that you realise just what he endured. And like John, you know, lost his mum. Yeah, so Roland, Roland John is the song that tells you just how much Lennon meant to Dylan. And like all the great, classic Dylan songs how does he describe him with naturalistic imagery about winds and rain and snow and and landscapes and all that stuff the way the way he sings about it makes me think about Lennon's dad being on in the merchant navy a little bit stormy seas and all that stuff and I wonder if Lennon had read some of the biography uh, Dylan had read some of the Lennon biographies at that time Marvellous. Well, thank you, John Stewart. Dylan, Lennon, Marx and God is well worth a read. And if you've enjoyed just a fraction of what we've covered on this podcast, you will enjoy reading this excellent book even more. And uh, thank you, John. It's been a pleasure to talk to you today. Really interesting to pivot, obviously, two of the greatest figures in musical history of the last century together in one place and, and their songwriting. So uh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Jason. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.